You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Bob Bear. Bob Bear, as I know many of you know, is the author of See No Evil and Sleeping with the Devil, both books about his experiences as a CIA field officer in the Middle East, specifically in, in Afghanistan and uh, parts of Iraq, actually. And <clears throat> he has been described by Seymour Hersh as perhaps the finest field officer the CIA has had in the area for many years. And I think uh, a reading of those books, and I know he's working on a third one, I think uh, will only confirm that for those of us who know him and know his work. Uh, he was also, as I know many of you know, uh, the figure that George Clooney was based on in the movie Syriana. Syriana having been based on Bob's book, uh, See No Evil. So that said, and of course Clooney went on to get both the Golden Globes and I believe a Supporting Actor Award uh, and Academy Award. So. Bob, we are absolutely delighted to have you here today, and I'm going to lead off so we can get the spotlight on you as quickly as possible and ask you, what are you doing now? I'm writing a book on Iran. It's a nonfiction book uh, explaining why Iran is in the ascendancy, why we're having problems in Iraq with Iran, uh, what we're going to face. It's a new superpower. Uh, it, it, it's a book that's not going to be particularly liked by the Iranians, um, but I think that, that we need to get at the truth. And our intelligence on Iran is very, very good and has been very, very good since 1980. Uh, much better than our intelligence on Iraq. And what I'd like to get across, and I have to submit my books to the public, um, to public affairs, the CIA, PRB, Publication Review Board. And they're going to look at this, but I hope to get this point across. I mean, the real danger we're facing with Iran. And I'm not an advocate of war, and I'm not a neocon, and I'm not an evangelical, or any, and I have no ideological motivations, but we are facing truly a, a new era, a new Cold War, if you like. Okay, Bob, I know your background, of course, is <clears throat> like mine. You were a DO officer for some 21 years, as I recall, 1976 to 1997. Is that right? 21 years. 21 years. Uh, however, you have gone on. I know you're a commentator, uh, an anchor person for some of the uh, Channel 4 programs in Great Britain. I know you've been a commentator here as well. But I know that being now in the public domain, doing a column for time, 
uh, you've moved, as it were, into the arena of policy, not just the intelligence. But uh, we can comment you know, on the intelligence to an extent. Let me ask you to take your, your discourse on Iran a little further. How do you see American policy towards Iran right now, knowing what you do and what you've just said about Iran? Well, the problem is, the big problem is Iraq, because as an Arabist, as a formal Middle East specialist, we always looked at Iraq as sort of the shield of the Arabs. And now that Iraq is gone, there's nothing that stands between Iran and the Gulf states, which, by the way, produce 60 percent. They have 60 percent of the reserves, world reserves, 17 million barrels of oil go through the Gulf Straits of Hormuz a day. Um, what's going to happen when Iran puts its hand on that oil? And that's the kind of strategic issues I'm looking at, not so much intelligence. Uh, you, you have to look at Iran's victory in Lebanon. Last year's 34-day war, they've, they beat the Israelis. There's no question about it. The Israelis have acknowledged this. They surprised the Israelis. They beat them. I've just come back from the West Bank. Hassan Nasrallah is looked at as a hero in places like Janine and Nablus and in Gaza. Nasrallah well. being the, the head, head of, of Hezbollah. Hezbollah. Yeah. Yeah. And this is unprecedented <clears throat> for somebody who's watched the Middle East to see a Shia Muslim radical, um, you know, a, a child of the Iranian Revolution becoming a hero in Sunni countries. And they're even talking, these stories may be apocryphal, about Sunnis converting to Shia Islam because of Hassan Nasrallah. It's, all, it's a, a similar in some ways to Vietnam, and I don't want to overdraw the analogy, but the main thing Hezbollah had to do was not lose, and they didn't lose. They didn't lose. And, they didn't, in they effect, didn't, that meant the Israelis lost. They didn't give up territory. They kept their weapons. They kept their prisoners. They are de facto power in Lebanon, and the Iranians look at this as their greatest victory, is what, what they did in Lebanon. They've, they, they've taken an Arab state and essentially occupied it, if you like ideologically occupied it. Um, Hezbollah is the only group in the Middle East that's ever defeated the Israelis in the field of battle, made them retreat, give up under force when they left Lebanon in 2000. This is an enormous um, boost for Muslim morale. You know, they've, they've lost here wars, 67, 73, 82, over and over and over again. And even bin Laden is, is a failure. So if you look at the difference, if you're a Muslim in the Middle East, and you look at the difference between bin Laden and Nasrallah, they're going to take Nasrallah, which we're basically talking about Iran. And this is the kind of, of, of ideological victory that they've won. Now, they are going to overexploit this. I have no doubt about it. They're going to overexploit their position in Iraq. But what's going to happen in the meantime, especially if Iraq is not cured or whatever ails it? I know you uh, <clears throat> have spent many years in various parts of, of, the, uh, of that area and that you still travel there from time to time. As I recall, you speak uh, uh, Arabic, Farsi, French, and German, right? <laughs> to, to a lesser and lesser degrees. Well, they get right. a little bit rusty, yeah. as you know, yeah. Peter. <laughs> Most of us haven't even made a beginning in at least yeah. three of those languages. Um, <clears throat> I know also, moving a little bit away from the ge sort of the geopolitical part of it, you have made a special study of suicide bombers. I know you've done, uh, I think, three programs on Channel 4 on suicide bombers. I know you have, uh, in, in talking to you, that you have personally visited and talked to suicide bombers. I just wonder if you would share some of your thoughts 
with what is essentially an American audience, although the people be listening all over the world. But what are you? What are some of your key observations about the phenomenon of the suicide bombers and about suicide bombers themselves? Well, you know, Peter, it's very personal because I was in Beirut in December '82, and I'd been in the embassy, this beautiful embassy on the Corniche, Ain Marasi. Uh, Lebanon is a, a really a gorgeous country. People are very vivacious, and here's. All of a sudden, the Palestinians are forced out of Beirut. You've got American troops. It seems like an American city. Beirut, for us, for the CIA, State Department, for everybody, really in the Middle East, was, was the gateway to the Middle East. I mean, it was where you figured things out, for every country. And I was in the embassy, know the people, talk to you know, the ambassador, everybody in, in the place. And I go away, and three months later, four months later, it's gone. Everybody's killed. And, and this whole dream of restoring Lebanon is gone. And one boy did this, who was never named officially by Hezbollah, completely as a, a battlefield tactic. It was a huge setback for the United States. And at that point, it became a fascination for me. I volunteered to go to Beirut right then and there. I was turned down. It took me a couple of years to finally get there. And I've been trying to assemble what drives these people. But, you know, Peter, you have to look at it is, I mean, we have in a sense, you know, in World War II, you have stories about soldiers rushing Japanese machine gun positions. Is it in a sense suicide bombing. So it's not unknown. We had the kamikaze pilots in Japan. But the Middle East phenomenon, I was very interested in deconstructing this. And when I went back to Beirut, I attempted to identify the suicide bomber of the embassy. Um, and I even went back. There was one previous to our embassy, and that was the Iraqi embassy. And, oh, and I, and I followed this phenomenon and how it started in Iran in 1980, um, moves to Lebanon in 83, blows up our embassy, the Marines, uh, used against the Israelis, uh, and then moves in in 1994 into Palestine from Iran, basically. So I, I traced this phenomenon from a place called Karaj in Iran, where the first 13-year-old boy rolled under a tank and then follow it. And my last films have taken me to Afghanistan. And what I found, it's, it's a virus, and it mutates as it goes. And it's, you know, you find the very educated, you find the well-off, you find the poor and the ignorant all part of it. And like any other virus, we can't predict where it's going to go. As you're speaking, the, <clears throat> the words that come to my mind, well, there are a couple of things that come to my mind, but one is copycat crime. That is, to the extent that it's done, <clears throat> someone uh, is a suicide bomber, <clears throat> excuse me, and they're then glorified, as it were, there are others who may wish to emulate that for one reason or another. They've lost Peter, the that, that, that's a good point in which you've, you've touched a, a very interesting subject, and that is you notice with the Iranians and Hezbollah, they've been very disciplined. When they decided to cut off bombings in 1996, the Iranians, and they bombed Kobar barracks, it stopped. There were no more assassinations. There were no more suicide bombings. But you get to Sunni Islam and you do find the copycats. You find teenagers in Britain 
getting formulas off the internet, uh, their guidance off the internet, um, they're running cars into airports, just, you know, ill-conceived operations where there's no particular control. Fine, they're going to Pakistan, they're going to tribal areas, they're, they're, they're hooking up with people, but there is no organization, which brings me back to Iran. If Iran wants to turn on terrorism again, it can use it as a much more effective strategic weapon. But you see the Sunnis in Iraq are just slaughtering to be slaughtering with no purpose. And they're slaughtering Muslims more than they are anybody else. And it's the difference between these two sects in Islam when I think there's a huge division and it's very clear what this division is. The other thing <clears throat> that came to my mind was the uh, one of the subplots in Syriana, uh, of which there are many, but one of the subplots was, and I thought it was very well done, was the what you and I would call proactive recruitment of a young of a couple of young Muslim men who were <clears throat> unemployed but but sort of adopted by a madrasa, if you will, or a community, and we see them exposed to the preachings of a, of a of a uh, an imam. We also though see an older uh, boy there befriend them, play soccer with them, and gradually lead them down a path. And that, to me, I think is is an alternate route as to how they're acquiring suicide bombers. And that was it's it's ex I've seen the exactly. This was after Syriana. I was, there was a young Afghan boy living in South Waziristan, 17 years old. He's in the mosque. The recruiters from the <laughs> Taliban notice that he's very devout and, and naive as well, and they pull him outside the mosque and they said, "What well, do you want to know really about Islam?" And he says, sure, and they, they take him out to a house, and they talk to him about the hereafter, the, the 72 virgins, uh, you, know, the, 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 you know, the the streams and the green and eternity and how martyrs go directly to heaven. And I asked this kid, I said, do you read the Koran? And he says, yes. And I said, I mean, do you recite it or do you read it? Do you understand Arabic? He says, no, I recite it. I don't know what it means. And I said, so you've gotten your interpretation of the Quran from the Taliban, yes. Anyhow, they recruit him to become a suicide bomber. But what they tell him is that he's going to wear this vest with acetone and peroxide, this formula, it's very easy to make. And you're going to go to Jalalabad and you're going to walk up to the governor. And what we want you to do is push this button. Now what this button is, we're sending a signal to Allah. And he's going to decide at that point whether he's going to take you into heaven or not. What they didn't tell him also was that they had a, a backup switch in case he didn't push the button, that someone was going to do it remotely. And he truly believed that, 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 that God was going to decide whether he was going to be sacrificed or not. And, you know, the, the more I talked to this kid, he was in prison in Afghanistan, the more I talked to him, the more curious I became. I said, well, have you ever heard of Iraq? I think I have didn't know about the Iraq war. This was this year. I said, have you ever heard of Palestine? He said, I think I have, but I'm not really sure what's going on there. So the whole idea, it's simply the Arab-Israeli conflict is driving this. It was an oversimplification. And then, and then I asked him, I said, why are you killing Muslims in Afghanistan? The, the governor of Jalalabad's a Muslim. He says, no, he's not. He's been converted by the Americans, which, of course, in Islam is the worst thing is to fall away from Islam and become a Christian and 
and I said, okay, well, tell me about Musharraf. And they said, well, he's a Jew. You know that, don't you? So it, it, in this case, unlike Lebanon, the suicide bombing is complete brainwashing, and we saw this in Syriana, where the young worker is, is, is brainwashed into thinking he's going to heaven. So you see all sorts, but that's, it's a, it's a, you could talk for hours about suicide bombing. <clears throat> Let me uh, just turn for a moment. Now, uh, as I understand it, the three programs for Channel 4 were on that subject, so I would hope there's some way that we can, we can gain access to those. Um, are you aware? Are you, I think you said one had been shown on a Discovery Channel. One was right? cut down to an hour and shown. It was nominated for an Emmy. I can't even remember the series, but it doesn't matter. And you can get it on Amazon.com. Bob, you know, one of the most, and I, I raise this because we, you know, as we're watching our time, um, one of the most sensitive subjects being debated today in Congress, as you and I speak, but it's been debated now for virtually since, since 9-11 is probably the best time to put it, is this whole issue of our American uh, handling of prisoners. Now, of course, there are prisoners and prisoners and prisoners. We know that. We know there are a lot of legal niceties, the Geneva Convention and so forth, that defines what a captive in war and so forth is. But let me go directly to the question of, of your view on what you would consider acceptable means, methods for us Americans. And I'm not making a distinction so much now between military, civilian, CIA, other agencies, in handling questioning, interrogating uh, um, suspected terrorists? My feeling is, and I am not an expert on this, so I am, a, I am treading on opinion now. I have watched governments in the Middle East torture. I've seen the product of torture. I've seen torture used in Egypt and Syria in particular, and I've seen the results of the interrogations, and they were not very good. And these these countries pr torture professionally. I mean, I mean, put it very cynically, they know what they're doing. They know how to impose pain. They know how to kill people, and their intelligence wasn't any good. And I look at a country like Jordan, British trained, that used traditional interrogation, sort of like the FBI would do, or our police, you know, modern police methods. And I found the intelligence is better. Now, since then, I've read a lot about it, and most of these countries, torture is used to intimidate the population, not get intelligence or information. You simply hang that thread over a populace that if you don't behave, you don't shut up, you're going to get pulled in and you're going to get tortured. And so is your family. In the Soviet Union, I, I think, and you know, I'm going to defer to you on this, it was largely used as a means for intimidation of the Soviet populace, not for to run intelligence. I mean, the KGB runs intelligence. And I like to use the example when they got the atomic bomb, they stole it by recruiting agents, traditional intelligence. They didn't, you know, kidnap American scientists and British scientists and torture them until they said how to make a nuclear bomb. It's unreliable. You also have the moral problem is what we have going for us in the West is a moral ascendancy simply we follow the Geneva Conventions, we are a transparent society, we should be, and we're going to win this war against radical Islam because we are, because we adhere to standards in the West. 
And I think it's a huge mistake to act like the governments in the Middle East, the repressive governments, if we put ourselves in that position. Or perceived is, is enough. By having Guantano, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, we've been set back decades in our moral ascendancy. Because you have to remember in the Middle East, in the 20s and the 30s, we were considered the hope. We weren't an imperialist power. Uh, people looked at the United States as a place to be educated. And I think the farther we fall away from that, the more damage we're going to do. And, and, and I've spent now probably a total of two months in Israeli prisons, talking to the Hamas and Islamic Jihad uh, prisoners that run suicide networks. And none of them were tortured, the ones I talked to. And they had free run of the prisons to talk to these people. The Israelis, I think for the most part, have decided that torture doesn't work. They capture these networks by hauling in family members, bribing them, paying agents, listening to telephones, you know, things we used to do to collect information. They've closed these cells down to the point where terrorism in Israel has more or less come to a screeching halt by good, solid intelligence. I'm not saying we can't. We can't do what the Israelis do. We can't do targeted killings, but that's another point. It doesn't work as far as I can see. I've never seen anybody make the case that torture and, and you know, and then the ticking bomb is is a false choice, because these guys are good, and you know if they're going to blow up something in Washington, they don't tell one suicide bomber about the other one where he's going to be his target. They're smarter than that. So if you if you catch a guy and you know explosion's going to go off in an hour, you can torture him all you want. He's not going to know. It's compartmented. The same sort of thing we did. So no to torture. It's a waste of time. Let me. Uh, <clears throat> impose my own form of torture here. I'm going to put you in a very difficult position, okay? I am the new incoming Secretary of State. You have had access to me. <clears throat> what would you tell me as I look at, and, and, and we know the situation will be somewhat different, but maybe not all that different, but what would your advice be to me as I look over the world, but particularly over your part of the world, the Middle East? Uh, you know, Peter, the problem is I'm a pessimist about the Middle East. I've tried to figure this place out. I've tried to argue. I've had, you know, after I left the CIA, I tried to do business there. I'm very pessimistic about the place, and the sooner we get out, the better. And if that means alternative energy, we have to do it. We have to. One, we're running out of oil. The oil companies, Saudi Arabia, have overbooked their reserves in order to get bigger votes in OPEC. So we're going to run out sooner rather than later. The sooner we get out of the Middle East very quickly and adjust our economy, whether it's nuclear energy, solar, wind, the better. We should start today, not wait 10 years, not wait for peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, not wait to sort out Pakistan. Pakistan is going to go under. We cannot solve these problems. We can go through the motions, we can try, and we have to try, but the sooner we get out, the better. Otherwise, we are going to be in a hundred years war in that part of the world, and we are going to eat up our retirement, yours and mine, in a, in a pointless war. 
So we, we, we have to withdraw. We cannot. The United States is not an imperialist power. We cannot impose our will in that part of the world. Last question, Bob. <clears throat> I'm a young person, perhaps one of your children, and I'm interested in going into intelligence. I'm thinking of joining the CIA, and I know you're considered one of the most experienced and accomplished officers that's been in that agency for many, many years. What would you tell me? I'd absolutely go in. If, if I had a choice between going to an investment bank in New York, I'd get out of Amherst, Harvard, wherever, or go to the CIA, I'd go to the CIA. Um, that or the military. Spend five years if you want. It's like the OSS days. It's, it's a great place to grow up. You need to become intellectually rigorous. Um, you see what governments work. You see the way foreign countries work. You break out of a suburban bubble by going to the CIA. Absolutely. Go in. Even if you want to go back into investment banking or become a lawyer, you do it five, ten years after. I think it should be part of the national service, and I would absolutely send people in now. Bob, it's been terrific talking to you today, and thank you so much for coming by, and hope you come by again. I will, absolutely. Okay. Let's, let's hope I'm wrong about the Middle East. Oh. I like to be wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.